This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome David Megelwein. Welcome, David. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Appreciate you having me. Excellent. Uh, what would you like the audience to know about yourself? Well, let's see. I'm a reformed golden handcuff wearer from corporate America. Uh, I am a general partner in a thousand doors. Well, actually, now it's more like 600 because we finished and we, we exited something earlier this this quarter. I've been a passive real estate investor or, or active in real estate since 1996. And um, I come from corporate America. During the course of my career in corporate America, I realized after having gone through two layoffs in 18 months that were not performance related, but merger and financing related, I realized that I had to take control of my own financial destiny and had to build a lifestyle outside of dependence upon merely a W-2 or the income I had by working for another. And that's what led me to this journey to break my golden handcuffs. Yep, exactly. Anybody who's you know hoping that their social security benefits or whatever is going to be able to ride them through a retirement is uh, dreaming. I don't know. But uh, uh, so back in 1996, you got started in real estate. Uh, how did you get started at that point? Well, if you think about it, the first purchase I did was a single family home for myself in 96. And that was an investment in real estate. People don't view it that way, but that's absolutely what it is. And from there, I parlayed that into several houses. And then I parlayed that into short-term rentals. I parlayed that into long-term rentals and vacation rentals and um, syndications of commercial strip malls. And then I parlayed that into uh, duplexes. And from there, I went into multifamily. All right. And is that what you primarily do now, multifamily? That's what most of the holdings are in right now. It's kind of a tapped out resource, I think, at present. Cap rates are not uh, higher than interest rates. So inherently, we have negative leverage. And what that means for the listener is that we're borrowing money at the same rate of return that we're generating on paper from the assets. So I have been investigating other opportunities as well. I haven't soured on multifamily. In fact, I still think multifamily is uh, a very strong and tremendous asset class. However, in the last five years, the market has flocked there. And as we all know, where the market goes, prices and valuations change. So one of the things I'm looking at is where is the market going to go next? And what is that going to do for both of these categories? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, a lot of people, like you said, have flocked to multifamily, and I think that's helping drive the prices. So even though the interest rates have gone up over the past uh, year and a half, uh, the prices are, are still pushing strong. People are still overpaying, in my mind, for some of these properties, but uh, maybe something will break soon. Um, and, and I suspect we might see some shift in the market uh, the second part of the year, but we'll have to see. So I guess, uh, what are you predicting now as uh, good asset classes over the coming years? I still think multifamily is very strong. I think that retail is having a little bit of resurgence in certain areas. I think that tertiary triple net leases are powerful. I was on hold interviewing a guy on my podcast, and he has almost a monopoly on the zoned 
business elements in his small town. So think about that for a second. If you are a major retailer like a um, dollar store, you're not going to spend the energy to rechange zoning laws, but you're going to buy from the person. You're going to rent from the person that has control. And as you have control, you have the ability to, to drive price. And real estate is one place where monopolies are legal. We don't talk about that overtly, but in real in commercial real estate, monopolies are legal. Insider trading is legal, so long as you're not a publicly traded company. And if you have inside knowledge of what's happening in the marketplace, you can act upon that. And I think for those two reasons, there's a lot of value still to be untapped in commercial real estate that people don't talk about publicly. And the reason for that is because it smells kind of rotten. However, it's not. It's just business. Yes, indeed. I mean, there's a lot of things about business and, and real estate that, uh, I mean, your school teaches you quite the opposite. You know, school says like, uh, you know, don't cheat, don't, you know, don't copy off other people. But in business and real life, like you copy off other people who are successful and, and that'll help uh, drive your success as well. Well, you know, I, I don't view it as cheating or copying. They say that, that, uh, plagiarism is a high plagiarism is the highest form of flattery. Now, I would say that there's there are original ideas and then there are reproductions of of ideas. And in the real estate business, we can definitely reproduce ideas time and time again, as we can in almost any factor. You know, if if you're importing fabric, it's not a novel idea to import fabric. What you're importing that's novel is the design. And so there's some intellectual property in that. But like if you're building apartments or you're renting apartments, it's not no novel that you're providing shelter. What's novel is the internal intricacies of how you do it. And I think that's important for all of us to realize is that we can still create and use the guidance of the past. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. That's crucial. So there's, I think, a lot of listeners here who are in a similar situation as what you had been in the past with the golden handcuffs where you're, you're chained to your high income job because uh, I mean, there's a lot of high income people that live paycheck to paycheck, even, uh, you know, doctors and lawyers and that sort of thing that uh, they, they make a lot of money, but they spend a lot of money too. So what advice do you have for those people to be able to break free of those golden handcuffs? There are so many pieces of advice. I think number one is to make sure you have financial literacy. I have been amazed in my journey that so many people I talk to don't have financial literacy around all of the elements. And to your earlier point, that's because it's not educated in, in schools. We don't – I spend a lot of time educating my children on the power of uh, leverage and on the power of real estate, on the power of stocks, on the power of, of bank debt. But I had to do that firsthand. And I had dinner last uh, – I had dinner on Saturday night with an, with an anesthesiologist going through a divorce. Now, anesthesiologists are some of the highest paid doctors there are. I mean if you want to make some bank, you go become an anesthesiologist, right? And we were having the very discussion around his financial literacy. There are so many things that he did know like pre and post tax dollars and what the importance are the importance is rather of earning dollar a versus dollar b pre and post but he hadn't taken a holistic picture on what that would do for the rest of his world and so i think one of the first steps is to determine what your level of financial literacy is 
And you'll be surprised at what you think you know that you might not know. From there, the natural evolution is to create a plan. Everybody's plan is different. So I'm not going to give you a cookie cutter. You got to do these seven steps to get to break your golden handcuffs because they're not seven steps. Somebody might have three, somebody might have 11, and it depends on what you want to do with it. Uh, it. There's an inference in there that people want to leave their job when they break their golden handcuffs. However, the reality is they might want to have more sovereignty over their time. They might not want to quit their job. I've talked to so many pilots who don't want to quit. They love the job, but they also want sovereignty over their, their financial world. And they don't want to trust all of their retirement to their employer. So there's a host of different ways to interpret this. Well, or if you um, want to live in a certain market, but you don't know how to get there, that can be a set of, of challenges. Maybe they're not handcuffs per se, but there's definitely a challenge in that. And if you're not happy doing what you do, how do you build that plan to get happy? That, that's really the idea is to ask questions. And then to verify and then to go back in and ask the questions differently and see if the results hold or if the results evolve. Any good resources you could recommend for increasing one's financial intelligence? Well, I'm actually working on a course for this very thing right now. Um, however, from a resources point of view, one of my favorite books was The Millionaire Next Door. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about that book, and it's not a rich dad, poor dad kind of usurped it in a lot of ways. The difference between them was a rich dad, poor dad, rich dad, poor dad taught a way of thinking, which most people don't teach. And the millionaire next door did a sociological study of what millionaires actually did. And so it wasn't a teaching how to think. It was a tomb on what people do with their money and to be able to learn and educate yourself on what works for you. And I think there's a huge difference in the two. Yeah, exactly. And I I would think, um, I I guess my opinion is that you need both. Not only do you need to think in, in, you know, bigger thoughts of of like what you can do and and how to get there, but uh, have the specific action plans. Cause I mean, you can think all you want in the world, but if you don't take action as well, it means nothing. Correct. Absolutely. And and that the action starts with writing a plan mm-hmm. and then executing the plan. And I think so much of that for, for your listeners that are high income individuals, is pretty self-evident, but, you know, think about this. Are you using your debt as a mechanism to grow your net worth or are you using your debt to withhold yourself from investing? You know, or are you using debt to just further lifestyle? Yeah, it's a debt is a tool like anything else. I mean, like a you know, pencil is a tool. You could use it to write beautiful poetry, or you could stab your eye out with it. You know, correct. Debt is a tool, and there's a, and so many think people think of debt as a burden. You know, and a lot of the financial people out there talk about you got to have no debt. You think of a Dave Dave Ramsey, for example, and, and or Doctor Laura, or all the mass market people that talk about debt as an adversarial part of your financial life. It's not necessarily accurate. I I remember at one point in time, I paid off my house free and clear. And from that, I actually left probably $200,000 in earnings on the table because I had 
maximize the amount of income I could, I, I had minimized my ability to take on leverage and I had committed my return to merely the interest rate I was paying for the time, for the period of time that I owned the house. And, and looking back on it now, 20 years later, I'm like, what in the hell was I thinking? Yeah, if you can use that money that uh, instead of putting it into equity in the house, if you can use that to make money elsewhere with an investment that overrides what whatever the interest rate was on your mortgage, then I mean, that's a no brainer, essentially. It seems like it. But, you know, the reason I did it was that my spouse at the time had a tremendous aversion to debt. And she was very much of the, you have no debt in your world and you own everything free and clear. And and there's a pr place for that. There's a pro and a con, right? So I think part of this is to create a plan that is customized to what your financial situation is that works for what your goals are. You know, if my goal is to own a private island, I'm going to have a very different plan than if my goal is to have a simple retirement and be able to have a $75,000 a year payoff, very different goals, you know, and they require massively different action too. Now you mentioned something earlier with the anesthesiologist you had uh, dinner with about, uh, you know, dollar in and dollar out. And I agree. It's, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. And, uh, you know, as an anesthesiologist, you're paying uh, a lot of money in taxes and, uh, you know, insurance and all that. And, and your final paycheck after all that stuff is, quite a bit less than what you originally made. And uh, so can you talk a little bit about like tax strategies for high income earners to essentially reduce their tax liability? Absolutely. Well, tax strategy, first off, let me say I'm not a CPA. Mm, yes. So I'm not giving tax advice. I'm talking from personal experience. As a high income producing or an HCE, a high, a high, a high compensation employee, highly compensated employee, the tax laws are really written against us. What that means is that if you're paying 40% federal tax rate plus a state plus a municipality, you could be paying over 50% of your gross wages into just those three things before you take out Medicare, Medicaid, before you take out any 401k contributions. And there are limits to what you can do from the W-2 side of the equation. However, you can do things like passive investments in real estate or oil and gas and that offsets so that you can take active income losses to offset active income gains. You can also create small businesses that can allow you to create active income losses and or active income gains. You can you, taxes are about planning and strategy, not about reactivity. Uh, at one point in time, I was making seven figures a year, and I spent probably two and a half weeks in a combined time analyzing with my CPA what I could do to defer and kick the can down the road on taxes, the theory being that the administration may change and the tax rate may go down and or my income might change and my income rate might go down. So some of it is as simple as, do you have an LLC that's passed through or do you create a C-Corp? Now, C-Corp's taxed differently than an LLC is, and an S-Corp is taxed even differently still. So you, you have to think about this in terms of your own situation. One of the biggest things I would look at is investing through 
tax-deferred mechanisms, i.e. a Roth or a self-directed 401k or a solo 401k, a solo IR, a self-directed IRA or a solo 401k. And those are opportunities that you can move things around and take gains infinitely tax-free. So those are those are important strategies. And I know that when I first started investing, those weren't options that were available to us. Another strategy is as you change jobs, move your 401k around. Don't leave it where it is. And that might not affect your current W-2 taxes, but it will affect your overall macro financial picture. And, and no, no doubt about that. Y you know, uh, another part of this is if you have a mortgage of over $750,000, Address that concern because the tax laws changed. It used to be that you had deductions up to a million. Now it's only seven fifty. Once again, it's another series of questions to ask yourself: Do I like that house? Do I need to change the property I'm in? Do I need to change my debt structure? Those are all very relevant questions. I don't know if that's giving you the right answer, but I think it's really individualized. So if you're a 1099 employee, it's a very different behavior than if you're a W-2 or if you're a solo, if you're a solo entrepreneur. I think the main point here is it's worth your time to consult with a CPA and other tax specialists to analyze what you specifically could do to reduce your tax liability. It's worth the time. Like don't just uh, hope for the best, you know, think and plan and take action to get there. Yeah. And I would also say it's worth your time to educate yourself because I've talked to so many CPAs and everybody has a different answer. And if you educate yourself and you understand what you're doing, you can take your own critical thinking skills and make your own decisions. So maybe it's worth putting the land into maybe it's worth putting your land into a land bank or or land trust. Maybe it's worth setting up a trust so that you can move assets from A to B. It's it's very specific to what everybody's needs are. And, you know, like taxes, for example, it, if you invest in a 529 plan, the different states have different deductions for the 529 plans. And there's not a law that says you must invest in your state's 529 plan. So you can, you can shop your state 529 plan across the country to find ones that give you different tax deductions. And in Colorado, where I lived, there's a dollar for dollar exchange. If I put a dollar into a 529 plan, I get a dollar deduction. That's a pretty significant behavior. Yeah, that is indeed nice. A, a book I really like about the the aspect of you know deferring taxes and whatnot is uh, Loopholes of Real Estate by Garrett Sutton. I don't know if you ever read that one. I'm not familiar with it. Tell me more. Uh, he's one of those the rich dad advisors, but he's uh, um, you know one of the top uh, you know. I guess I, I, yeah, he's an attorney, but um, uh, so he just goes over like oh, a ton of different loopholes of, of uh, like S Corp or C Corp or, or LLC, like how you should mm -hmm. structure your investing business uh, in a way that makes sense to be able to defer your taxes potentially indefinitely until you die. And then it resets after that for your inheritors and, and uh, just how to, um, you know, all the benefits of, of doing different things, like what state you should invest or like put your LLC in and, and whatnot as well. Absolutely. And there's an important part to that. Are you going to put your state where it, you care about having uh, anonymity? Do you want to put your LLC into a domestic or a foreign entity, i.e. your own home state or a foreign state? 
what's the tax? What's the pass through rate? You know, Wyoming's the latest uh, darling, if you will, because it's cheaper and simpler than Delaware. But Nevada also has uh, non-disclosure statements and non-judgment responses. And what that means, and I'm not using the correct legal term, so bear with me. The theory is if you get sued and there's a judgment issued against you in most states, they can compel you to sell the asset to pay the judgment. However, in Wyoming and Nevada and Delaware, they can't compel you to sell the asset they can compel you to pay the dividend upon selling the asset. And so it just sits there into perpetuity. And, you know, I'm not an attorney either. So recognize that this is not legal advice. This is just something I have learned the hard way. And, and you've also got to think through from a tax point of view, when you go to liquidate, is it better to pay the taxes or is it better to exchange it? Or is it better to look at an opportunity fund? In, is an opportunity zone or an opportunity fund a better investment, even if it reduces your returns by 5%, but you have no tax liability? You know, these are things that people don't often talk about. And it's really crucial to pay attention to. Indeed. So you're you're actively syndicating properties. You just took 400 units full cycle, but you've still got uh, 600 units currently. Your uh, mm-hmm. GPN. Mm-hmm. Are you seeking um, you know additional passive investors for future uh, opportunities as well? Absolutely, I'm always trying to grow my investor base. And the reality is that right now, I think the market is trying to find a balance. The transactional volume in 2023 has been so much greatly, so much greatly reduced from what it was in 22 and 20 and 21. And I, the reason for that is the Fed. Quite simply, since the interest rates have gone up, uh, God, what is it? 500 basis points. I can't. I've lost track. Literally, it's gone up more than it has ever gone up, and the interest rate will be higher than it was before September one. September 11th of 2001. So think about that. Right now, our interest rates are, are equal to, and if the Fed raises rates this week, which the betting population says they will by 25 basis points, we'll be at the highest interest rate an entire generation has seen. And, but, oh, go ahead. And what that does is it slowed down transactions massively. So there is investment available. But the leverage costs have really changed. Yeah, and I think your yeah your strategy changes with the interest rate. But I mean, you look back to the 1980s, and uh, the interest rates then were in the high teens as well. So, um, it, you know, just even seven percent interest rate is still cheap money compared to uh, what it's been at other points in history. Oh, totally agree. My first house, I was happy to have it below nine, hmm. and and I remember, I don't know how how. With whether you were in the workforce in 2001, but I was, and I remember the day that September 11th occurred, the federal fund on funds rate went to zero when the markets reopened. And it took a long time for them to move out of zero. And what we've actually seen, if this is the case, is that we finally reverted 20 years of response to a terrorist attack. You know, and that was a fascinating time period. The Fed was the the stock exchange was closed for a week. Um, banks were closed. The markets didn't know what to do, 
and we were pre we were on the precipice of a, a time similar to when Pearl Harbor was struck and when COVID was closed down. It's the same kind of response, and it takes a long time for that to go through the cycle. So I'm actually happy to see rates at a normal level, but I don't know that the that the sellers have realized their values are changing. I think they're starting to, but only just barely. Uh, and many are, are certainly uh, not there yet. But we'll, we'll yeah, exactly. Um, so when uh, passive investors are, are looking at different general partnership teams to invest in, how could uh, somebody determine whether or not you and your team are a good match for what they're looking for? Yeah, great question. Well, the short answer is to visit my website, macassets.com, set up a conversation with us, and let's talk it through. Uh, however, from a what do you do questions to ask, look at look at uh, alignment of values, alignment of interests, performance, look at models, look at thought process and critical thinking, look at the due diligence behaviors. I don't know if that's the question that you were really posing to me. You know, there's so many resources out there for how to pick the right teams to invest in. I think one of the most important things is, can you understand where the syndicator is making their decisions from? And the sponsors and the people that you invest with make decisions every day. The decisions that really matter, you might not be privy to in the beginning. And what's crucial is if you understand how they make them. And what the factors are that go into it. For example, we have a pool in one of our one of our uh, projects, and it's not doing very well. Is it better to repair the pool without a known cost benefit analysis, or is it better to take the pool away and take it back to playground? Which is a better decision, and what's going to be the factor driving us? Is it going to be resident enjoyment is it going to be demand is it going to be financial constraints those are the things that i think people need to look at because those are the decisions people make day in and day out that truly affect the effectiveness of any given investment yes indeed uh so what's a problem that you've encountered with a real estate investment and how is it handled Well, um, let's see, a problem that I've encountered that hasn't been how's it handled. I actually had a tenant one time commit suicide. And it was tragic. But the interesting thing about this is that how do you handle it? Well, you've got an estate, and if they leave a will, you've still got a tenancy. So the fact that a single person died in an apartment doesn't make the apartment automatically vacant. And you have to deal with their estate and the laws that handle that. So I think it goes, goes back to understanding how the world requires you to behave in these things. So you have to track down the next of kin. You have to create notifications you have to deal with all of these things while balancing the rent loss. And you can assess the estate for income and, and rent after they're deceased, but is it rational or not? It's hard to say. 
So that's one example of a problem. Another problem would be an uh, a uh, a contractor invoicing me ninety days in arrears. And what you do with that? What I did with that was, uh, you know, I fought the invoice and uh, negotiated compromise because the contractors hadn't put it in their books, and it affected the budget a great deal because there was no knowledge of that being spent. And I think that's a, often a problem that people have is to be very much aware of what's going on in the um, payables and in the, in the, in the deliverables from a renovation project. Those are very crucial issues. Yes, exactly. We could have another episode uh, just about contractors and oh, oh, <laughs> indeed, totally. <laughs> We we need them, uh, and but things need to be clear with good contracts. But anyway, I, I digress. Okay, are you ready for a speed round? Fire away. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? The money. And uh, what do you know now about passive real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started? The massive tax benefits of depreciation bonus depreciation, cost segregation are compoundingly important. Absolutely. What's a book that you can recommend to other investors? Talked a lot about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I might go with uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Really did talk about how to think. And I'm a big proponent for critical thinking. Now, I will say it was he, he's got a lot of ego in there. So you got to read it with a grain of salt. But he did make a penny or two, and he might know a little bit about what he's talking about. So you can give him a pass on some of the ego. Okay. Thank you. And uh, how can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to learn more about what you have going on? My website's macassets.com. You can reach us there. And I host a podcast called Break Your Gold on Handcuffs, which you can find wherever you listen to your podcasts. Excellent. I'll include those links in the podcast uh, show notes here. Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't already covered? You know, if you're looking to invest and you're not sure what to do, we published an ebook called How to How Ugly Apartments Deliver Beautiful Returns. And it goes into the mechanisms of scale, which is shelter, cash flow, appreciation, leverage, and equity, and what those things benefit how they benefit the passive investor. And I talk about all the benefits I talked about, money, returns, tax benefits what leverage can do for you and what leverage cannot do for you. And then the valuations and, and how you can maximize returns. Excellent. And how pe can people find that uh, ebook? So my website, macassets.com. That's fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for all the value that you've offered uh, the audience here today. And uh, David, you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You do the same. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.